Sawabona, and thanks for listening. Welcome to the Wines of South Africa podcast. My name is Jim Clark. I'm the U.S. Marketing Manager for Wines of South Africa. In each episode, we explore some aspect of South African wine. We talk with winemakers, winery owners, and other members of South Africa's vibrant wine industry, and we also give a sommelier a chance to share their impression of the wines. Obviously, this is an audio-only medium, but if you'd like links to the wineries we're talking about, maps of relevant wine regions, and some other visual aids, please go to our website, wosa.us, and click on the podcast tab. In this episode, we're going to look at South Africa's most planted red grape, Cabernet Sauvignon. We're going to narrow it down, however, to Cabernet from just one region, Stellenbosch. There are almost 3,000 hectares of Cabernet just in Stellenbosch, where it makes up one-fifth of the vineyards, and the grape has definitely become the flag-bearer for the area. Cabernet is not one of the first grapes to have arrived in South Africa, but there were definitely Cabernet vineyards there by 1894, and within several decades it had a solid reputation. By 1927, Professor Abraham Parold could write that, at the Cape, as in the Medoc, Cabernet spells quality in dry red wine. For a long time, there wasn't much of it, though. White wine has been more prevalent in the Cape since the birth of the industry. A lot of Cabernet went into blends, but 100% Cabernet Sauvignons became increasingly common in the 1970s and 80s. Well before the end of apartheid, many serious winemakers had already shown what South African Cabernet could do on its own. Those wines were rarely heard of outside of South Africa, but they laid the groundwork for today's wines. My name is David Finlayson. I'm the owner and cellar master at Edgebaston Vineyard in Stellenbosch, South Africa. I produce a range of wines under my name, David Finlayson, for the United States and for Europe. And our focus varietal in the Reds is Cabernet Sauvignon. My grandfather, Morris, was a Scottish pathologist who settled in South Africa in the 1930s. But one of his great loves was wine, and of course, he enjoyed food very much as well. So in about the 1950s, he bought a property known as Hartenburg today, and he started the family tradition of winemaking in Stellenbosch. My father, Walter, was the eldest child, and he studied at Stellenbosch and then went to Scotland, back to Scotland, to the Scottish roots, but eventually came back to Stellenbosch. And his younger brother, Peter Finlayson, also has become a very famous winemaker and is well known. He was the first winemaker at Hamilton Russell Vineyards in the early 1980s. And today he's at Bouchard Finlayson. And then, of course, I studied winemaking in Stellenbosch at Elsenburg College. And I've been uh, making wines at Glen Carlo and today at Edgebass in my own property. And then I also have my brother-in-law, not a Finlayson, but he's married to a Finlayson, to my sister Carolyn, and they own Creation Wines, which is in the Himmel and Arda Valley. And then we also have my cousin, Peter Allen, who is at Kristallum and Gabriel's Kloof. So there are quite a number of us in the wine business in South Africa. The whole estate wine scene only really started late 1960s, early 1970s. And the Stellenbosch Wine Route was founded in 1973. My father wasn't a founding member, but he joined very soon after. And he focused then on producing bottled wine as opposed to bulk wine to sell off to the wholesalers. And he moved on from Hartenburg to Blauklippen in Stellenbosch. And he was there twice the Diners Club South African Winemaker of the Year. And the first varietal that he won with was Cabernet Sauvignon. So I grew up in a household where Cabernet Sauvignon was really 
the grape variety that I always heard about that was always being consumed in the house. So it's kind of ingrained in me from when I was a young kid that Cabernet was the king of red varieties. As a kid growing up, I always saw these bottles lying there and all they had on the label was GS. And once I was old enough to sort of really get interested in wine, I asked what the story was. These were wines made by a winemaker called George Spies, who was in charge of production of wine in Stellenbosch Farmers Winery, one of the big wholesalers. And George made some special batches, small batches of wine. He put his own label on them, and then he was told he wasn't allowed to, to sell the wines, which is very similar to what happened at Penfold with Ways Today Grain. George's cabinets were fantastic, but the big company in this case blocked him from actually selling it. And I think they maybe they rued it the day they did, because those wines have sort of gone on to become legendary. The 1966 was the first one that he had a fair amount of to release. And then the 1968 was the, the second one he released, but then he stopped after that. So as I say, I grew up looking at these wines. I then showed the wine when it was 41 years old to James Molesworth of Wine Spectator, and he gave the wine 95 points. And suddenly everybody in the industry sat up and said, wow, what are these old wines? And the big thing with what George did back then, which is what I respected, people used to blend Sanso and Shiraz in Cap, but he put 100% Cabernet Sauvignon on the label. And for me, that was the key thing, to show that South African Cabernets can last easily 30, 40, 50 years and stand up to the best in the world. We've had many tastings with those wines from the 1960s uh, alongside some of the top Bordeaux's and more often than not, they've absolutely been equal to those famous wines. In South Africa, production by individual estates rather than big negociants became more important in the 1970s. Many of these estates focused on red wine, including Cabernet. By the time Etienne Lerich opened his own eponymous winery in 1997, he had already established a strong reputation for his skill with Cabernet at Rustenburg, an estate with 300 years of history behind it. Today he oversees the cellar at Lerich Wines, but his son Christo does the winemaking. I'm Etienne Lerich. I studied viticulture and I joined the Rustenburg in 1974. And then I was with them until 1996. During that period, I made quite a range of wines, but the wine that I was most successful with was the Cabernet Sauvignon. It's an estate on the Simonsburg Mountain. So it is actually an estate geared for red wine production. I made quite a reputation for myself during that period. And when I started on my own, it was only logical that I would specialize in Cabernet and take my strongest point that I had established over the years and build on that. I think the method that I employed then was to search for good pockets of Cabernet Sauvignon in the Stellenbosch area and to vinify them. Initially, I blended them. And slowly, we, we changed to keeping the different pockets separately and trying to identify different sub-areas in the Stellenbosch area. There was quite a growth of Cabernet since then. I can remember when I started at Rustenburg, and even for a couple of years after that, there was a huge shortage and a great demand for Cabernet, so much so that we had to ration people. 
and the prices was relatively high as far as we were concerned now. Looking back, it wasn't, but certainly we felt at the time that the Cabernet was in good demand and we subsequently planted quite a lot of Cabernet after that. I'm, my name is Christa Larish. I'm the director and winemaker for Larish Wines. I've been making the wines since I've taken over from my father in 2010. I'm also at the moment the acting chairman of the Stenbosch Cabernet Collective. We're basically a winery who's very much focused on the production of Stellenbosch Cabernet Sauvignon. We do 200% Cabernets, and Cabernet is really what we live and what we breathe. It's our passion. We love the different regions of Stellenbosch. And just working with fruit from, from all around the area gives us great exposure and the ability to assess and blend the different styles together and really showcase them to the world. In general, Stellenbosch Cabernets have got a, a very lovely acidity that's sitting to the background of the wines. They are not as rich and intense as what you would find in a Napa-style Cabernet, but they're not as austere as what you would see in Bordeaux. So you're still getting a beautiful, fine tannin seam, but they're a little bit more approachable in the specific tannin structure. Fruit components will vary between red to black-fruited styles, and then you'll also find a dried tea leaf character coming through, or what we like to call a fangbos character, which is a herbal element that is also sitting there, which is characteristic of Cabernet, but it's also characteristic of our area. But then also within Stellenbosch, there's quite a myriad of styles that you'll see. So you'll find some of the producers are going for lower alcohol, a bit more savory style of Cabernets, and then you find other producers that are making big, opulent richer style of Cabernet. So there's quite a spectrum available, but in general, I think the best way to describe it is that we're sitting very nicely in the middle between what you would see in a big Napa cab or a more austere border. We're sitting right there in a sweet spot between those two. The big push for planting Cabernet in South Africa came after 1990. Plantings went from less than 3% of South Africa's vineyards up to the 11% they are now by 2001. Growing conditions matter. Stellenbosch's location, with mountains on the eastern side and False Bay to the south, means Stellenbosch Cabernet has some universal characteristics that make it different from, say, Parle, where David Finlayson made wines when he was at Glen Carlew. But hills, mountains, and soil types also create variations, so there are plenty of individual nuances to different parts of Stellenbosch as well. In general, Stellenbosch is, I would say, 2 to 3 degrees cooler Celsius during summer, so Paul gives you slightly riper fruit and a warmer fruit complexity. Stellenbosch can tend to be on the greener side of things. And you have to be very careful not to get too many pyrazines, those really green characters in your Cabernet in Stellenbosch. On the other hand, Stellenbosch Cabernets do last a lot longer. They mature for longer in the bottle and they're more long-lived typically than Paul Cabernets are. I think the number one difference is distance from the ocean. Without a doubt, Stellenbosch is spread out from next to the ocean at False Bay, and it goes inland, I would say, about 25 kilometers. And then you go over a small mountain range or range of foothills, and you get into the Paul Valley, which is a much bigger, wider valley, more inland. And there's a slightly less cooling effect from the ocean in that valley. What's happening is that every afternoon, we get a sea breeze that blows in over Stellenbosch and there where the vineyards are exposed to the sea breeze is where you usually find some of the best Cabernet vineyards. So they're sitting in a band of around 150 to 400 meters above sea level. And this is where that sea breeze, it's almost like an air conditioner that switches on every afternoon. So even though the region 
does get warm, we get these lovely cooling breezes that come in, which allows the ripeness to be extended and us to actually get proper ripeness on Cabernets within a region where very close by we'll be in Shiraz and Chenin Blanc country. Yes, I just want to mention, of course, the moderating effect of the proximity of the sea is, is uh, a big influence. And then along with that comes a higher rainfall as well. So we have the benefit of a higher rainfall and then the moderating effect of the ocean close by. We, we work in a Mediterranean climate, so it's, it's mainly winter rainfall. And then in the summer months, we'll get the, the occasional shower coming through as well, which will reach up into high summer that we can get some rain. But typically, the influence of one, as my father said, the ocean plays a big role in the rain that we're working with. But the second major influence is also the mountains. The Hottentans Holland mountain range is sitting to the east of Stellenbosch, and that almost forms a ridge in which the clouds build up against. So you'll find on the western side of Stellenbosch, we'll have 600 millimeters of rain in a year. And then in somewhere like the Yonkershuk Valley, it will go up to 1,200 millimeters of rain. So the rainfall will almost double. So typically, the farms that are very close to the mountain itself can often be farmed dry land, where as you move further away from the mountain, you'll find the rainfall diminishes, and there the need for irrigation tends to creep up a little bit in the vineyards. Our vineyards range between 30 to 40 meters above sea level up until 600 meters above sea level. So we've got a very wide range of altitude that we can plant in. And these mountains have a big influence on the climate, the wind, the aspect, etc. But one of the major influences that the, the mountains bring in as well is the impact of soil. The majority of what we're planting on is granite. A lot of it is either very old granite. That's what we typically find in the lower-lying regions. It's a duplex soil, a lot of gravel, iron ferricrete, which we call coffee stone, and a little bit more sandy loam at the top with a clay base. And then as you go up the mountain slope, you get much deeper soils ranging up to about six meters deep. That's about 18 feet. And these soils have got a very good drainage, quite a high clay percentage as well and is typically a little bit more vigorous and structured in terms of the soil structure. The variation we've seen between the upper hillside or mountainside slopes, wines, and the lower valley floor is that the valley floor or these older soils typically have more perfume on them. It's a very fine, delicate tannin structure, and they typically ripen a little bit earlier in the season. So we'll start picking on those soils around the end of February, first week of March where the wines coming off the mountainsides are more robust, more structured wines. You find a long length on them as well with a very powerful tannin structure. There's a lot of fruit intensity, a lot of power. And typically, those wines would ripen much later in the season. So they can be picking from middle March up until the first week of April on those soils. And it's a more structured powerful style of cabernet that you'd see coming off the upper slopes of the region. This obviously took a long time for us to work out. It's not a quick fix. It was almost a generation of making wine. We are not a research wine seller. So it needed repetition and good traceability that we needed to apply in the cellar. And for us, it's quite a big step to, after such a long time, to say that we can now identify between the different soil types, at least two different soil types and different microclimates in the Stellenbosch region, being the 
upper, uh, the, up on the mountain slopes and lower on the more gravelly soils closer to the sea. So we found a significant difference between those two wines and you can show it in the wines as well. So we blend for our wines, but we also at the stage where we will start doing those separately and individually as different parts of Stellenbosch. Finlayson's Edgebaston estate is located between the hills in the middle of Stellenbosch and the Simonsburg Mountain, which separates the district from Parle. It's one of the only areas in Stellenbosch to have substantial amounts of shale in the soils. High up on the mountains, one tends to get these sort of yellow and red Hutton soils and Clavelli soils, as they call it. Then as they've been eroded and you get further down the hills to where we are on the foothills, you get these shales, which are what do we call honeycomb shale. It's a layered clay rock which retains a lot of moisture to a certain point, but then at a point, if you don't get enough rain, it can dry out a lot. So the vines do benefit from it, but they can also struggle to grow, and that gives you quite low yields and quite concentrated fruit. Some vineyards get further up the mountainside, making elevation a factor. Stellenbosch has seven wards, and the highest is Bahnhoek. I think there had been vineyards in the Bannock Valley before, but there wasn't much of a spotlight on the Bannock Valley. Even back 20 years ago, there wasn't a proper road heading over the pass down into Bannock Valley, which is surprising because it's a fantastic site for growing fruit, not just grapes, but plenty of other fruits and flowers as well. Now it's pretty well established. It's quite a small area. There are probably only about 10 wine producers in the Bannock Valley, and Geographically, it's very small, so it's unlikely that many more producers could establish themselves here. But now if you look around, it's become quite well known for Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, and one or two other great varieties. My name is Thomas Webb. I'm one of the family members and directors here at Selena Mountain Vineyards in Stellenbosch, South Africa. My family started the business when I was seven years old, so it's all I've really known. And on top of being born into a wine family, it happens to be quite a good wine family. So I've been very fortunate to have been able to watch my father build Selena over all the years. And on top of that, enjoy lots of really good wines since I was quite young. My dad started Selena in 1983. He was an accountant previously and having tasted a white burgundy in the early 70s was the moment that he realized that accounting wasn't for him and the pursuit of making wines anywhere close to the quality of this burgundy was what he was interested in. So he went back to university in the late 70s, studied winemaking and worked a couple of harvests to get experience after qualifying. At the time, my father was working for Stellenbosch Farmers Winery, which was a large, I guess you'd call it a cooperative in Stellenbosch. And one of his colleagues mentioned this little property up on the Hillsworth Pass. My dad remembered that and visited this property. At the time, it was owned by an English chap called John Kitson. Gerald befriended him, fell in love with the property. And after a couple of years, Mr. Kitson accepted an offer and made three we moved on to the property. It's quite a small property. It's only 157 hectares of land, but there were 30 hectares of orchards on the property that we knew worked well for orchards, and Giles' confidence would be good for grapes as well. He went about pulling out all the orchards and planting vineyards, building a house, building a winery, building a dam, and really starting off from scratch. And 37 years later, we now have this beautiful property with 50 hectares of vineyards and lovely wines coming off it. 
The Bamak region is considered quite a cool region within Stellenbosch. It benefits from having aspects facing both north and south because it's, it's a valley. And where we are located, our vineyards are mostly south and southwest facing. So those are the cooler slopes in the southern hemisphere. And that helps us because we're looking to make quite lean, dry, structured styles of wines. We don't really want these big sun-ripened grapes to make these big fruit bombs. That's not really our style. From an elevation point of view, too, we're up against the Simonsburg Mountains. So our vineyards run from 340 meters above sea level up to 550 meters above sea level, which is a lot higher than you'd expect most farms in the rest of Stellenbosch to be. We also don't get affected by any really bad weather. The southeaster, which is the main wind, causes very little damage to our crops, as opposed to the Helderberg, who get doesn't really get hammered when the wind blows. We get about, on average, 850 to 900 moles of rain a year, which is pretty good. And that's a really big help for us, although we have come through a couple of years of drought, but we managed to get through it, and hopefully we can keep managing We've also spent many years and a lot of money clearing as much alien vegetation off the mountain as possible because there's a lot of alien species up on the mountainside, uh, wattle, pine, eucalyptus trees, and each of these trees is sucking up hundreds of liters of water per day per tree. So that's quite a, a help for us to fill our dams, getting rid of these trees. Giles only wanted to work with great varieties that he he enjoyed. He didn't want to work with anything that he wouldn't want to drink himself. And he's not a big Pimitage fan, so we never thought about planting Pimitage. We didn't think about planting Shannon because in the early 80s, Shannon Blanc wasn't considered a a very good grape. That's certainly changed now. Uh, Shannons from all over South Africa are fantastic. So Giles stuck with the grape varieties he enjoyed. But bear in mind, this is the early 80s, and it was still when South Africa didn't have much favorable trading with the rest of the world, and we, we didn't have access to a very wide range of rootstock. So we were a little bit limited back in the 80s. I don't think my dad, even though he loves reefing, I don't think that would have been the first grape he would have wanted to plant at Felina, but uh, it was one of the varieties that was available. Uh, Muscatafantion was also another variety that, that was available that we had to grab. We did want to make Chardonnay, and one of the clones we got was clone 166, which is a Dijon clone. But we had no specific intention of farming with this clone. It was just what was available, and we actually didn't really know what to expect. And subsequently found out that it's this very sort of aromatic, almost Yonia-like uh, character that we get of this. And the same goes for our famous mint, Cabernet Sauvignon. That's clone 163 Cabernet Sauvignon, which we didn't realize was going to give us this slight minty eucalyptus character. Obviously, the eucalyptus trees do play a part in it, but we, we do think the clone might have helped accentuate that minty character. Weirdly enough, my dad actually worked in California in the early 80s. He spent six months at Heights Cellars in California, and very, very famous wine is the Martha's Vineyard, which also has that quite distinct minty character. And that same vineyard, Martha's Vineyard, has eucalyptus trees near it. And when my dad first made the Selena the Mint Cab Sav, and he tasted in the barrel, he was like, gee, this tastes just like Martha's Vineyard. I wish we could have got away with the same prices that Martha's Vineyard could get away with, but, <laughs> but we'll settle for what we get. What we have now is a much better choice of different varieties and of a healthier plant material to plant. So this does lead 
to my belief that we're going to have much better vines in this current generation of vineyard as opposed to what was put in the ground in the 80s. Wine grape clones, in case you're not familiar, are different cuttings taken from a vine that has favorable characteristics. So one clone of Cabernet might produce more bunches than another, one might do better in hot climates, another in cooler, wetter spots, and so forth. There are quite a number of clones available, and I'm not totally up to date on all the clones, but I would say clone 46, which is kind of the classic Cabernet clone, but the, the cleaned up version without any virus, that's the one I like the most. There are a number of Californian clones and uh, new French clones out, which tend to be softer. They produce softer wines. They're, they're slightly bigger berries. We just planted one of them two years ago. It's a softer profile Cabernet because the cabs I have are in a way almost too muscular and, and so powerful and strong that they need a lot of time or need a big glass and a decanter and aeration to allow the tenants to soften up a bit. So we've been looking for something to just kind of give us a slightly softer fruit profile. Merlot is often used as a softening component or something to kind of ripen up cabernets, but it's not something I like to do. I feel it dilutes the cab, the power of the cab. I'm just making pure cab. That's what I want to do, make 100% cabernet. I was very fortunate as a young winemaker. I literally qualified as a winemaker at the end of the whole apartheid regime. And I was one of the first South African winemakers who could go and travel the world and make wines all around the world. So in 1994, I went and worked vintage in Australia at Peter Lehman Wines. And from there, I went over to New Zealand and traveled a bit in New Zealand. And I came back to my father with the, the vintage 1995 in, in Paul. And then from there, I went to Chateau Margaux in Bordeaux for the 95 harvest. And after that, I went across to the U.S. and did the New York wine experience because Giancarlo had been invited to that. But then I went to Napa and I, I started to learn about Californian Cabernets. So I was quite fortunate to get a lot of different ideas from around the world and how to work with Cabernet and then to adapt those ideas and styles to the fruit I was working with in Paul and today with the Stellenbosch fruit, which can tend to be greener, but I definitely worked more towards the ripe fruits spectrum. Like anywhere in the world, specific sites are going to produce better wines than others and and also then obviously if they harness the, in the right winemaking style, the wines can last. So without a doubt, we've seen the top Cabernets and top Cabernet blends from South Africa ripe and rich and delicious when they're young, but they can also stand the test of time. And you can safely say 10 to 15, maybe 20 years, all of them will go the distance. We're talking the Canon Cops, the Limas, I'd like to say my own wines, and, and those wines that are well-established and, and have proven that they have a track record. That said, not all Cabernet is made as extracted and as big and bold. There are also cheaper versions that are perhaps easy drinking and commercially very nice wines, but not made to go more than five or six or seven years. My father, Giles, always makes wines in the style that he likes to drink them, and he likes more structured more quietly complex styles of wines as opposed to those fruit-forward, fruit-packed wines. So generally, when you're trying to make those more structured, elegant wines, you're picking a little bit earlier, you're getting a little bit more of the tertiary flavors coming out, often with a higher acid and a bit more tannin. 
So you're already making a style of wine that has the DNA to age well. And that's part of the whole wine adventure is making a good wine and seeing how it develops into a great wine. The site is quite conducive for more of those classically styled wines. So with our Cabernet Sauvignon, we're not just looking for great fruit. We want great fruit, but we also want all those lovely tertiary flavors like the cedarwood, the tobacco leaf, a little bit of that sort of dried herb, and then that lovely sweet blackcurrant finish at the end. I think it's the perfect site for the style of wine we like to make at Zima. So it's a, it's a happy marriage. I think one of the big considerations to take on the Cabernets we're producing at the moment versus Napa is that we've got a much higher focus on acidity and the elegance that's coming through in the wines. And I think that acidity that's in our wines and the natural acidity without ripening the wines to such an extent that they actually become market ready at a young age, there's a bit more restraint in it. So you find more austerity and I think we, you maintain a little bit more of that ageability. But a lot of the winemakers also grew up on drinking wines from the 60s, 70s, and 80s and learning from people like my father, the young winemakers who are working with me today. And I think there's a lot of respect for that style of wine, and we don't want to lose the heritage that we had then. But I think my father can comment more on the style of wines they used to make at that stage. Yes, <laughs> I think in those days, certainly the crops were smaller, so we had lower yields. And we used different pruning methods. And we obviously didn't have the luxury of new oak in our wines. So most of the aging was done in bigger oak vats. And the concentration was more on grape tannin management. So having a wine with deep colors and lots of extract and tannin as well is what we were very much attent on to make wines that could age for a long time. And I think those are the wines that was then drunk uh, 20 years later and made a big impression. But that was the basis that we started working on. And, uh, you know, also picking our grapes at slightly lower sugars than what they are now. First of all, we had a bit more uh, virus problems, so the grapes never ripened really to the same level as they do these days. So we were quite happy to make wines between 12 and 13% alcohol. We didn't have the, the oak, as I said, so that we had a good balance of lower alcohol and lots of extract because the vines used to hang for a long time. They ripened a bit later in those days than they do now with the more modern vineyards that we have as well. And we used to age them for sometimes a bit longer than two years in the big oak vats. But those were the styles that we made there. So somewhere from there, we must try and make a more modern style now that would include some wood treatment as well and maybe riper grapes that the new world actually demands these days. Linking on to what my dad was saying is we've always tried to pick at the lowest possible ripeness that we can. Back in the 80s, although they also struggled to ripen and you would see ripeness only coming towards the end of March, early April. Today, we can get that, that same level of ripeness almost a month earlier. So there's definitely an influence of climate shifting. We're working with a healthier level of vine at the moment. So you'll see that we'll get that same level of ripeness at a 14% alcohol, where my dad and them would get it at a 12.5% alcohol back then. But for us, I think the stage of picking or what we would describe for our house style as optimally ripe 
would be where the fruit changes and where you still have that natural acidity and tension on the wines, but they've still retained good fruit, good ripeness, but with that tension and almost X factor that you find with fruits that's on that verge of ripe. And we strongly believe that that helps the ageability of the wines. With extended ripening, you start to damage the fruit itself, and I think you lose aging potential. And then on the two wines that we're producing, we try and make two wines or two styles of Cabernet, one which is made for drinking younger, which is our Cabernet, and our reserve Cabernet Sauvignon that's very much for long-term aging, 10 to 15 years or longer if you want to. We achieve that variation through picking, but also through production processes, tannin management and oak management to give you those two different styles of wines. But both those styles are focused on playing that balance of ripeness where we're not going overtly ripe, but elegance and ageability remains one of the focal points of what we're doing. We also make a blend. That's a cab with a bit of senso just to soften, to pull the spectrum open a little bit. That gives us a bit more fresh fruit on the blend. And the Cabernet is a lighter, more elegant style. And the reserve comes from our top vineyards and they get preferential treatment in the wine cellar and uh, a little bit longer in, in the oak as well. So but there's a wine with a bit more complexity and obviously are the best that we can produce. So those are the wines we'd like to show with, whereas the cab has got a huge following and is our best seller actually. And it's a popular wine because it falls in a good price range and people are quite confident to keep it in their cellar for three or four years, often longer, and then to enjoy it after that. Blends, as opposed to wines made solely or mostly from one grape variety, are more common in South Africa than in many other New World countries. Cabernet Cinso blends play a unique historical role in South Africa, but that's a story for another episode. In the early 1980s, several Stellenbosch wineries, Velchemind, Overgau, and Merlust, introduced Bordeaux-style blends for the first time. These wines have come to achieve their own prominence alongside the straight 100% Cabernet Sauvignons. I'm all for border blends or border style blends, but it needs to improve the main variety. So if we wanted to be improving Cabernet Sauvignon with Merlot, Cabernet Franc, Petit Verdot, we'd need to be pretty sure what role the other variety was going to play. In the early days of Salima, we used to put a little bit of Merlot in the Cabernet Sauvignon and a bit of Cabernet Sauvignon in the Merlot. But we stopped doing that, and I'm not really convinced that Merlot at Salima is the right other variety be putting in with Cabernet Sauvignon because our Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignons are both quite similar in style. They both are a little bit leafy. They both have quite similar flavors. Now, we do put a bit of Petit Verdot into our top Cabernet Sauvignons, uh, which is called the Rabelais. Some Merlot did go into the Rabelais in the early days, but the formula pretty much is 90% Cab, 10% Petit Verdot at the moment. What the Petit Verdot does is it adds this lovely African violet perfume to the wine. So it just gives the Cabernet Sauvignon a little bit of prettiness that it can sometimes be lacking as 100% Cab Sav. The Petit Vidot doesn't really do that much to the lip palette, but it helps with the color. It gives a nice dark color, a nice high acid, and that beautiful African violet perfume. So that's our sort of little secret component Obviously, if, if we can make a better wine by adding some mellow in there, we'll do so, and we will consider that. And we have we are planting some Cabernet Franc in 2020 this year, 
and I'm pretty sure some Kevin Trump will get in there eventually. But with the Rabelais, it's very much just about trying to create the best wine we can from Selena. But with the Selena Cabernet Sauvignon, we're trying to produce the best Cabernet Sauvignon from Selena. And with the Merlot, the best Merlot from Selena. So the Rabelais is a bit of an exception on that side. Cabernet's importance in Stellenbosch might be perfectly apparent to the winemakers who work there, and to some savvy wine drinkers. But sometimes you have to toot your own horn and let the world know what you're up to. As Christo Lariche mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, he's the current chairman of the Stellenbosch Cabernet Collective, a group of producers dedicated to doing just that. We started working on the project in around 2013-2014 with our first major tasting at the 2015 Cape Wine South Africans big trade show in Cape Town. And then in 2017, we got together and as producers, we saw the need for a collective marketing body for the region. Typically, especially post-apartheid South Africa has gone on its own with every man for himself. And we just found that on an international scale, having to compete against major state-funded marketing bodies, for example, that you'll find in Chile, Australia, New Zealand, even France, Spain, and those other countries. South Africa has, as an industry, we've got no state support. So it was really necessary for the producers to pull together and really start working together to get our message out there. We've been producing great cabernets since the 1920s and 1930s with a significant boom in the 1960s. But those wines were really drunk locally with very little exposure onto what we can produce going internationally. So as producers, we got together and said we need to work together towards a collective marketing strategy. And for that reason, we established the Stellenbosch Cabernet Collective. We are about 30 producers that are working together, all within the Stellenbosch region, all making wine of origin Stellenbosch Cabernet Sauvignons. We're basically working together to promote what we've known for many years, just to get the message out there onto the international community so that the rest of the world can really get to taste the wines and experience what we can enjoy on a daily basis. If you look at the bigger picture of South Africa, I don't believe there's a stronger grape within a region as Stellenbosch Cabernet Sauvignon. In terms of quality, in terms of consistency, in terms of history, Stellenbosch Cab Sav is, I think, is South Africa's main, main calling card. We've come through 10, 15 years of great excitement and invigoration from the whole new wave movement, mainly led by those really interesting guys coming out of the Swartland. But post-new wave comes a renaissance, and I think the renaissance is being led in Stellenbosch. When you think about those great Bordeaux-style producers of Mielis making Rubicon, Rustenberg, Peter Barlow, the Rustin Fierders, the Waterfords, the Canoncops and the Salinas. There's just so much quality, so much history coming out of there. I think there's a second way it's coming, and that's led by Stanbosch Cabernet Sauvignon. To get a U.S. perspective on Stellenbosch Cabernet, I spoke to Lindsay Thomas down in Houston. Lindsay, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Good, thanks. And you recently took a new position, right? I did. Uh, I just took the position as the wine director at the River Oaks Country Club here in Houston. Congratulations. Thank you. In my experience, a country club in Texas is a good place for Cabernet. 
It is indeed. It definitely leads the charges in terms of the wine that we're selling for our dining room and our banquets. So in terms of Cabernet, when did you first become aware of South African Cabernet? Well, I think I first came across South African Cabernet when I was living there, when I was studying for my master's degree. I actually lived in Johannesburg, so not near wine country, but obviously had a large amount of South African wine available to me. So that's when I really started to uh, understand the vast variety and depth of wines that are available from wine country in South Africa. And Johannesburg, too, is another very steakhouse-centric part of the world. Yes, indeed. I had some very fun experiences with South African steakhouse culture and definitely drank my fair share of South African cab. So this was before you were pursuing sommeliehood as a career, I take it? Yes and no. I have been in the service industry since I was 19 and always had an interest in wine. But I hadn't fully committed to the fact that hospitality was where I was happiest. So I had worked in a few restaurants in New York. Actually, the Ken Forrester Chenin Blanc was my first South African wine that I ever tasted because it was on by the glass when I was working at Budokan. So I actually got a fairly early introduction to South Africa there. But I have always had an interest internationally and actually especially in South Africa and the continent in general. So I went to spend some time there, but I also met a lot of hospitality when I was living there. And South African wine has always been a big focus of mine in terms of wine studies. When you came back and you started maybe looking for some of those South African wines you had seen down in South Africa, what did you find here in the States? At the time, around 2012, 2013, there weren't very many at that point. But I did work with things like Warwick Estate, Rustin Vreda, Glen Ellie. Those were some of the early wines that I was able to work with. Cabernet is South Africa's most planted red grape. Is it still the leading grape that you see for American consumers? I would say I'm probably a little bit skewed in my experience, having spent three years in a steakhouse before I moved to the country club. But I would say that it definitely, between that and Pinot Noir, is still the most requested grape from consumers. All right. And how does a Stellenbosch Cabernet fit in for what consumers want from Cabernet here in the States? I love Stellenbosch Cabernet as kind of a fit every kind of situation cab. First of all, they are still sitting in a really approachable price point. There's a huge amount of value for what you get in the bottle, which encourages people to experiment a little bit with where they're getting their wine from. And then in terms of flavor profile and what's actually in the bottle, they tend to fit something for every palate. So you get this richness and ripeness of fruit that makes it approachable straight out of the bottle, but there's incredible mineral complexity in a lot of the wines as well. It's a good bridge in between styles, and everybody tends to find something that they like in South African or Stellenbosch Cabernet. Is this that old world, new world meeting point that people often talk about with South African wines? Yes. I will be a broken record on that one, but I I truly do believe that that's it. It can bring somebody from one side to the other and vice versa. It fits a really lovely niche and is always tasty to drink. 
Now, we sent you a few bottles to refresh your memory on what's happening with Stellenbosch Cab. What did you think of the wines that we sent over? I loved the wines. I tasted the Neil Ellis Yonkershuk Valley Cabernet Sauvignon. I tasted the Kenningkopf. And then I tasted the David Finlayson Cabernet Sauvignon as well. I think that they all fit that general description of kind of bridging that divide between styles, but they each have their own specific style as well. The Neil Ellis, I really love for its plushness, its opulence. I think that this is a very good sidestep for somebody that's used to seeing something like a big Napa cab. This has that richness that somebody is looking for, but there's still a lovely freshness to the wine as well. The Cannon Cop is exactly what I would expect Cannon Cop to be. It is big, it is chewy, it has this beautiful, savory earthiness to it and fruit that will go on for days. The wine drinks well with a decant right now, but this wine will age forever, which is another really exceptional quality of the wine. The David Finlayson I had never tasted before, and it was a surprise and a delight. It has this wonderful, playful energy to it. The fruit is just bursting from it, but really fresh and juicy, but it's got this stoniness, this freshness. It's very, very easy to sip by itself, but I see this one as being the most versatile in terms of of food pairing. These three wines come from different parts of Stellenbosch. Do you see a regional character that comes through it that shows off the different pockets within Stellenbosch? I am absolutely starting to notice some regional differences between the wards that you're starting to see on these labels as well. I think the Neil Ellis from the, the Yonkershuk, it has that richness of fruit that you get there, but there's also that beautiful freshness from that coolness that's coming from there as well. The Canon Comp really has that elegant pedigree that you feel from the Simonsburg, as well as that beautiful structure that comes from there too. I think that as we go forward and you start to see more of these wards on the labels, you'll start to be able to do some tastings next to one another and start to really dive into the differences between these regions. Yeah, I think a lot of them aren't used on labels enough, but if you do your research, you can even do that now because, like you said, the Simonsburg, the Yonkers hook, That's I think it's a very typical example of the ripeness, the perfume, and again, the freshness that you find from a lot of the mountain fruit from uh, Yonkers Hook or the upper Blauklippen Valley. And then we could have gone on. There's great cab from the Helderberg or from the Butlerai or Polka Dry Hills area. So I think right now, if you want to do that, you have to do your research and know where people source from. But hopefully we'll start seeing that on labels more clearly soon. Absolutely. And now you just have to have a little fun doing some detective work. Thanks very much for talking to me. Is there anything else, any other insights about Stellenbosch or South African Cabernet in general that you've had over the years that you think people might want to hear about? I'm very excited for where the winemaking industry is in terms of South Africa right now. They're really starting to come into their own with making these elegant, well-made, well-thought-out wines. And also, I'm very excited for... It feels like they're going through a little bit of the generational evolution at this point. There's the stalwarts, the established producers, but there are a lot of young producers who are taking that knowledge and experience they have from their parents or grandparents or whoever they've been working with and moving into their own. So I'm excited to see what kind of evolution comes from that new generation as well. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode's look at Stellenbosch Cabernet. I think we dropped some major foreshadowing in there. Bordeaux-style blends, the 12,000 hectares of Stellenbosch's vineyards that aren't Cabernet, and the story behind that mysterious practice of blending Cabernet and Cinceau are all destined for future episodes. In the meantime, you can find more resources and links to the producers we spoke with, the Stellenbosch Cabernet Collective, and the River Oaks Country Club, where Lindsay runs the wine program, at our website, wosa.us. While you're there, check out the Wines of South Africa Psalm session. If you want to learn more about South African wine, here's your chance. Get together a group of friends on Zoom or whatever video conference platform you prefer, have each one pick up a bottle of South African wine beforehand, and we'll arrange for a sommelier to kick off your online party with an hour-long rundown of the wines. You'll find more details on our website. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, or better yet, go to the platform where you found it and leave a review. That will help more people discover it and discover South African wines. If you were surprised that Cabernet Sauvignon was South Africa's most planted red grape, it's probably because another red grape has hogged the spotlight for a couple of decades. It's indigenous to South Africa, and while it's created many great wines, it's also a grape some people love to hate on. We'll find out why and what they're missing in our next episode when we look at Pinotage. (laughs) 